Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. iPad has magnetism and with I put up this magnetic and I didn't realize it lets me position it exactly where I want it I've gotten pickier about things as my eyes have gotten worse I had a a bout with my eyes about three months ago it really took them down a big step in their utility to me I mean uh, probably not in their utility they're still as as useful but in their operation and so uh so I'm getting pickier about how I set things up up here. I have six months more to be picky and, uh, about this. And uh, during those six months, I have a number of themes that I, that I have been thinking about that, that it's my goal to address um, as, I'm, as we're making our way towards my departure from the every morning preaching of the word here. There are certain things that I want to make clear that I think are fundamentally important. And so... Appreciate your, your patience as we go through Matthew. Many of them come to a head in our passage this morning. Our passage this morning, the parable of the ten virgins, we're going to spend a week on it, a second week on it this morning, and then a third week uh, next week. And I think it's worth, I actually have a book where the guy probably has 30 sermons out of this passage, an old Puritan. And the more we think about it, I was talking to Mike before the service, and he said he'd been thinking about this passage, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a really powerful parable, maybe one of the most significant. Though we don't usually rank it up there with the parable of the Good Samaritan or things like that. So, will you stand with me? We're going to read together Matthew twenty-five through one through thirteen. We endeavored to get it in the same translation of the Bible on your screen as I'm reading, but it was. The software we use doesn't really make it easy. It doesn't have this version in it yet. So just look on as I read aloud from the version that we've been using for the last six or eight months or so. This is in the midst of Christ's Olivet Discourse. Olivet being Mount of Olives. Discourse being a form of teaching. It's a private teaching to his disciples based on questions they ask him about when the end will come, how it will come about. And so for two chapters, Jesus is engaged in teaching his disciples. A great portion of the book of Matthew is dedicated to this as much almost as is dedicated to the Sermon on the Mount. So if you take the Sermon on the Mount and this, you have about 20% of the entire book of Matthew consumed between two sermons, probably three hours in the Christ of life are you know, physically that he was speaking are dedicated to these two sermons in the book of Matthew. So the word of God, then the kingdom of heaven may be compared to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish and five were prudent for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. 
But the prudent answered saying, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. Let's raise our hands. Will you join me in praying for God to bless his word? Father, this is your word. We are, we are nothing before the word of God, but it lifts us up. And we pray, Father, that by your word, you may elevate us today, that you may speak and we may hear through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Among the things and the themes that I have become more and more convinced are missing in the church today and uh, in all our lives. It's not just today. Some of them are unique today. Some of them are kind of evergreen in terms of being problems we face. Among those that, that I want to spend time in these last months that I have, and I'm grateful for your trust in the elders in the matter of the vote last week. We are very, very grateful to you for a congregation non-parial, without equal. But among the themes that I, I feel at this stage in life I am prepared to speak on and called to speak on are several that, that are vital to understanding this passage one of which is the, the great goodness and kindness of God. And this is something that as I'm approaching older age, I've become more and more convinced of that God is good. And I think if there's one thing an older pastor can do that a younger pastor can't, there are many things a younger pastor can do that an older pastor can't. But if there's one thing an older pastor can do that a younger pastor can't do, it's to, it is to speak from personal conviction borne out over time that God is good and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him and that there is nothing in the world to compare with the joy of following the Lord. That God is immensely good and that his love is worth everything in the world to obtain. The second is the beauty and the need of fruitfulness. That faith requires obedience and obedience issues in fruitfulness. Both these themes are found in this parable of Jesus. Now as we've looked one week at this parable, we talked about the overall overarching reality that there are two groups within the church that there's a fault line that Jesus is describing and he describes it throughout the entire discourse every word he speaks in here is kind of defining this fault line that exists not between Christians in the world he doesn't spend time on that that's obvious to everyone but this fault line that drives through the kingdom of God the kingdom of God which is the kingdom of Christ here on earth is like 10 virgins, 
five of whom are foolish, five of whom are wise. It's not the world is like 10 virgins. No, the world is not 10 virgins. The world is mostly adulteresses, harlots. That's what I am in my flesh. That's what you are. This is speaking about the church. The, the kingdom of God is like this, can be compared to 10 virgins. And so recognizing that Jesus is describing this great distinction, difference that exists. And some element of us are on one side of this divide and some element of us are on the other. And depending on how gracious God is to us as a church, the, the one side of wisdom will be larger and this will be smaller. And depending on and the grace of God, we grow on this side, but it's also true that this side can grow. And, and that's the message of Hebrews that we're looking at in our small groups this week, that this side is growing, you know, and it's this side that should be growing. And so recognizing this reality was the theme of our first week in looking at this, the theme this week and I think it's an essential thing to do is to, to look a little deeper at this parable in two areas and to, to identify two things in this, in this parable that are essential to gaining the lesson that Christ has in store. So it's, it's within the church and that much we're, we're clear about. We should be. I don't think anyone disagrees with me. I mean, it's obvious, right? But... Beyond that, and my father used to warn me against trying to make a parable walk on all four legs. It's an old preacher saying, don't make a parable walk on all four legs. Don't find a reason and an explanation for every single word, okay? So it's a danger not to take the big picture, but to, to divide it into tiny little things. And if you've ever read some of the church fathers, you'll know that they, they go to marvelous, incredible lengths. And uh, what they say is all true. I mean, it's never like they're saying things that aren't true. But where they get that from, that portion of the Bible, you go, huh? That's a big, big biblical truth, but I don't find it right here. And yet, it's a, a style of interpretation that Jesus himself uses at times and he, he says i'm speaking allegorically jesus actually says that and so he's saying I, I things are figures and i i look at that and i see bigger things than just the words and he does it and we need to do it so i don't condemn it but i'm always concerned about not going too deep and and making the big picture obscured by all the little details so what are the two things that remain for us to identify in this parable that are vital? Well, obviously, there are two very clear things that divide the wise from the foolish, okay? One is exactly that. There's wisdom and folly, right? What is wisdom? What is the wisdom of the wise? How are they wise? Where does this wisdom come from? That's not our theme. That's going to be next week. The other is, what is the nature of the oil? What is the oil that the wise virgins have? And I think as we understand that, we can go back and talk about what is their wisdom. What is the oil that the wise virgins don't run out of and that the foolish virgins 
run out of, all right? I, I think if you think about this, you've got to say, what is it? If, if on this presence, uh, on the presence of this, this oil, eternity hinges, and that's what Jesus is saying here. If your oil runs out, you don't go into the wedding banquet. Well, then identifying what the oil is has to be vital. It's tremendously important, right? And so we need to know what the oil is. What is this oil? All right? And I'm going to say some things about this oil that some of you are going to rebel against. And I'm going to quote, I'm probably going to, I know I'm going to quote Augustine on this. And Augustine is right. I'm going to quote a little bit perhaps from John Calvin to support my view, okay? And between the two of them, you know I'm pretty orthodox. And yet what you're going to hear, I think, which is absolutely clear from the passage, something that you may think, that's wrong. What is the oil? What is this oil that we need to have and that the foolish people run out of and the wise virgins maintain? Exclusion from a wedding banquet, as Jesus refers to in this parable, is not like exclusion from a wedding banquet on earth, all right? This is important. I think some of us are secretly kind of happy when we don't get invited to weddings, right? Has anyone ever had that? Man, yeah. Uh, and you go, you know, it's real nice in theory, but it's a Saturday night and I'm happy to be home sitting in my easy chair with a fire, right? And uh, not any of the weddings this last year I have immensely enjoyed, okay? <laughs> They've been wonderful. I'm not joking. I, I know you think I'm, I am not. I, I, have I have loved the weddings that we've had. But I, I know that at some point all of us go, oh, oh, oh yeah, heaven forbid, heaven spare me another wedding. <laughs> and uh, this is not that kind of a wedding. Exclusion from this banquet is turning down an invitation to life, a life that is true life, and choosing instead a life that is living death. From life with God in heaven to eternity in hell. From an atmosphere of absolute eternal joy. An atmosphere of love and glory and power and light where, there's, where tears are impossible. To an atmosphere which Jesus defined in the verse of the chapter that immediately precedes this. But remember, Jesus didn't divide his preaching into chapters. Okay, so he's just said before telling this that this parable that the master of the slave will come on a day when he doesn't expect him, an hour which he doesn't know, and cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he's talking here about two realities, one of which is the immense joy of the wedding of Christ to his bride in heaven. To be included in that incredible, awesome day, that scene of immense power and love. And on the other hand, being counted among the hypocrites who are 
excluded from this place and, and rendered to a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it's hard to convey to the people of this world who are committed materialists, all of them, and you are this too. I mean, it's an infection that has gotten in the bloodstream of us all. That what is true is what is touchable, tangible, you know, fungible, that these are the things that count. And the spiritual is not real. Uh, but let me, let me say, it's not that the spiritual is not real, right? It's that the spiritual is very real, but I define it. Okay, that's the theory of the world. We're all materialists. We all believe that, that what can be touched is what's real and that what is important is what is tangible, practical, um, and that things that are not tangible and practical and daily can't really be useful. That human flourishing comes through our wallet and through our mouth and our stomach and through our, the warmth of our bed and these things. And so God is responsible for providing us with these things and the spiritual, the, the kind of numinous, the, the world beyond, eh, you know. Except with this exception, that as I define it, I'm willing to be spiritual. Not as God defines it, but as it affects me and as it makes me feel, then I'm willing to be spiritual. But I define what is of the spirit. And I'm reading this book, and I'm, I'm going to show it back to you because some of you have this the kind of bad habit of if I show a book of running out and buying it and thinking I'm endorsing it. Okay, and uh, I'm not endorsing this book, but it's a very interesting book. And it's, uh, it was put out 15 years ago, and it's um, there, all right? It's, I gotta cover that too. It's put out by Harvard Press, and it's written by a Roman Catholic philosopher, um, and it's a very interesting book. Now, it's wrong in many ways though it did win a Christianity Today book award, I've just noticed, which means it's really wrong. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is a guy who taught at McGill University in Oxford. He's 91 today, I think he's still alive, and he's written a book on secularism. And I hadn't heard it, but until my brother started reading it and, taught, and Twitter tweeting about it, and I'm going, whoa, this is a very, very interesting book. It's very interesting. And what he says is that, well, let me just um, see if I can find a few quotes from him. He says, we live in, everyone acknowledges we live in a secular age. What does it mean to say that we live in a secular age? Almost everyone would agree that in some sense we do. I mean, the we who live at least in the West, right? Westerners. 
And the judgment of secularity seems hard to resist when we compare these societies, our society, with anything else in human history. But it's not so clear in what this secularism, secularity, consists. The difference consists in this, that whereas the political organization of all pre-modern societies before the 15-1600s, the, the political organization of all pre-modern societies was in some way connected to, based on, guaranteed by some faith in or adherence to God or some notion of ultimate reality, the modern Western state is free from this connection. The political society is seen as that of believers of all stripes and non-believers alike. In our secular societies, you can engage fully in politics without ever encountering God. So it's the ability, he begins with, of the state to exist without God, without the Holy Roman Emperor being crowned by the Pope. We don't need God to rule. Now, he's not entirely against secularism, though he's a practicing Catholic. He continues, belief today, now he's going more to the personal aspects of secularism, is an option. And in some sense, an embattled one in the Christian or post-Christian society. A change I want to define and trace is one which takes us from a society in which it was virtually impossible not to believe in God. America 400 years ago, even after modernity hit, you know, uh, the, the Dark Ages, it was impossible not to believe in God to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is one human possibility among others. I may find it inconceivable that I would abandon my faith, but there are others whose way of living I cannot in all honesty just dismiss as depraved or blind or unworthy who have no faith, at least not in God or the transcendent. Belief in God is no longer axiomatic. There are alternatives. This will likely mean that at least in certain milieu environments, it will be hard to sustain one's faith. There will be people who feel bound to give it up even though they mourn its loss. This has been a recognizable experience in our societies. He continues, it is this shift in the whole context in which we experience and search for fullness that I am calling the coming. It is this shift, not in the shift. It is this shift in the whole context in which we experience and search for fullness that I am calling the coming of a secular age. How did we move from a condition where in Christendom, people live naively within a theistic construal and within a world which was seen through the eyes of God, his existence, to one in which unbelief has become for many the major default option. How did this happen? This is the transformation I want to describe. And one more quote. My claim will be that secularity came to be along with the possibility of exclusive humanism, which thus for the first time widened the range of possible options, ending the era of naive religious faith. Exclusive humanism, in a sense, crept up on us through an intermediate form, providential deism. And both the deism and the humanism were made possible by earlier developments within Orthodox Christianity. Now that last sentence is a key one. He says, he says, I reject the idea that it's the advance of science that has rendered faith impossible or made many people say, I can't believe. Secularism is not 
is not caused by scientific theory. What he says, and I'm going to read it, I haven't read it all yet, is that secularism began in the church. And that that secularism led to science and led to where we are today, but that the secularism of today is a product of a change in the church and not some external influence that overrode the church or displaced the church like scientific advance. And I think he's right. I think he's absolutely right. That secularism lives in your heart. That you have drunk it like your mother's milk from birth in the church of this world and this day. And that you are without knowing it halfway down the path to being a pure secularist unless God has been very merciful to you. So, as we make our way through this, this passage, I said my goal as a 63-year-old pastor is to convince you that God is good and to convince you that you must put aside your judgments and your thoughts and view the world through a non-materialistic, non-secular mindset if you're going to see the goodness of God and reap it in this life. You cannot go the path of reason in the world, tangible, fungible, concrete, and end up at God. You will end up one of the foolish virgins. You will. But if you begin with God and you seek first him and his righteousness, then you will end up with all the glory of heaven in your life here on earth and with the richest blessings this earth offers along with persecution. And of course, that's the rub. There will be persecutions. Jesus says, Peter says, when Jesus asks, are you going to stay with me? Peter says, we left everything for you. Of course we're with you. Peter responds to the question of Jesus. Jesus responds to Peter and says, truly I say to you, after Peter says, I've given up, we've given up everything for you. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms. You notice all these things are tangible, fungible, you know, relationships. They're, they're concrete things. He says, there's no one who has left these things. House, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. And these are, these are real things. Relationships, possessions, belongings. Mother, father, children or farms. So a house is where you live. A farm is where you work. Your income, your house, your, your relationships. For my sake, no one has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age. 
And Jesus has just described a number of things that are vital to us. And he says, look, you give them up for me. And father, mother, sister, brother, son and daughter, farm and house, you know, means of making income, security of your house, all the relations, give them up and you'll receive what? A hundred times as much in the present age. And then in case you're trying to think, oh, it's just some kind of internal glow that you receive. He goes on and says, except the one who, one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age. And then he says, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms. All right? So he's talking about these things you treasure and value as a materialist. You'll receive 100 times as much along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So, my great goal is to tell you that God is good and that whatever you give up for him is repaid. Whatever. It's true. It's absolute truth. If I think back on our life together, Cheryl's and mine, and the things that we thought were sacrifices, I can show you time after time that they were not sacrifices, but in fact, they were the seedlings of great, great joy and blessing. It's just true. I wish I could communicate in my time remaining with you the truth of this promise. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and we haven't done it. I keep thinking about my life and thinking how little I gave God and how richly I'm receiving blessing. I'm not talking um, out of the, you know, I'm not talking piously in this. Man, I think about my life and I think, I hope you all do and say, I have given God nothing. I've done nothing, you know? But the little we've done has led to immense blessing. So the implications of this are huge. Give God your all here. Give him your attention. Live for him spiritually. And you get earthly treasure and eternity. So our passage is about those who have kept their eyes on Christ. Those who have kept their focus on him. They're watching for his return wisely. Not giving in to sleep, keeping extra oil, being found ready at his return, and those who are not ready, unwise virgins. And the distinction between the two, well, one of the two distinctions is that one brought extra oil and the other did not. Now, what is not the distinction is we talk about the oil. What's clear here about the, negatively, about the character of the oil? Okay, in other words, what is the oil not? All right, you know, you, you have to define what something isn't before you can say what it is. And the oil is not certain things, it's very obvious. Let me say, it's clearly not that one set of these people is happy and fulfilled in this life while the other is piously unhappy and unfulfilled. They're very similar going to a wedding. It's not that one set is wealthy but worldly, the other is poor but spiritual. Now, it is clear that one set is more truly spiritual than the other. In other words, the unwise virgins and their oil 
are the spirit of our age. It is the age we live in of the unwise virgin. But it's not clear here that one set is spiritual and the other not. They're both spiritual, as we'd call it. But fulfillness, fulfillment, happiness, joy are bound up together in the virgins with the extra oil. And the virgins who bring the extra oil, Jesus says quite categorically, they, well, they receive 100 times as much in this present age as they gave up, and they bring, receive eternal life in the age to come. So all good things belong to this one group, the wise virgins who bring the extra oil. It's not just sufferings in this age and glory in the life to come for the wise virgins. There are persecutions that they embrace in this age, which the other group does not, but there's also reward, rich reward in this age. So we can't say that the group in the church represented by the wise virgins is piously poor, piously deprived, piously unhappy. They are happier. They are more richly blessed. They are wiser. They are more spiritual than the other group. And they receive eternal life. They are blessed in this life and in the life to come. They accept the persecutions. They accept that the life they are leading involves suffering for the name of Jesus. They accept the suffering of carrying the cross. It's not all suffering. It's not all persecution. But when suffering comes and persecution with it, they know the reward of God and they accept it because they see how faithful God has been to them in his rewards, in his love and kindness in this life. And so they come with extra oil. They have oil that lasts. And when suffering comes, they have oil. They have oil when worldly drowsiness threatens. They have an enduring oil. And like the widow's flask of oil under Elisha, their oil never runs out because it has its source, its fount in God. It is a river of life, a river of oil like the widow's cruise under Elisha that brings and and flows from the life of God. It is from the fount of God's grace. The oil of these virgins like the widow's cruise that never ran out, the, the poor widow who had no money. And, he, and Elisha said, go and fill up your containers, all your containers from that one little thing of oil you have. And it didn't run dry until she had enough to pay all her debtors, all her creditors. It's found in God. And this oil, it flows from God. It's a river of life that comes from God through his son. What is this oil? Well, again, I'm, I've got to define it negatively. It's not unhappiness. It's not a lack of money. It's not all the things that you may think it is or worry it would be. Nor is this oil simply obedience to God. This oil is not obedience to God in one sense. You understand that both groups of young women, the wise and the unwise alike, are virgins. They are separate from the world. They are not harlots and adulteresses. They are pure, set aside for Christ. If you look at, at those that Scripture reveals to have fallen short, those whose lamps went out in God's word, you'll not find a lack of obedience to God, at least initially. No, they seem paragons of obedience initially. They're like Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament, who feared God initially. 
King Saul, who put to death all the mediums in the land, initially. King Saul, who fought God's enemies by faith, initially. He was the man. He was this man until the day he no longer was, until the day his oil ran dry. Over and over again in Scripture and in life, we find this true. People who start well, people who begin with power, but their flame dies. They have lost, obviously, evidently, the oil in their lamps. They were waiting, they were waiting, and then somehow, somewhere, it went out. They started powerfully, and then like the seed sown among the rocks in Christ's parable of the sower, spring out powerfully, beautifully, and then troubles and persecutions, and bam, it's gone. So what is the oil? Well, we must again state quite clearly that it's not simply fear of God that leads to obedience to his law. These people have enough fear to come here and wait and to be virginal. And they have some fear of God and his law. They're saying, well, I'm going to obey God because this is the path to happiness. And so they set out down that path. Again, turning to the parable that Jesus tells of the sower, there's a second group in that, in that parable, the group represented by the seed that falls on the thorny ground among the weeds. It springs up, but unlike the seed on the rocky ground, it doesn't wither and die. It survives. It looks healthy. It stays. It remains until the end. But, one exception, it fails to produce fruit. The worries of the age, the deceitfulness of wealth, cause it never to bear fruit. These are professing Christians. They pay lip service to God's law and even obey it, but they do so out of a craven fear. Like the Pharisees. They say, God is big, God is tough. I had better bow before him, but their hearts, not so much. But they say, God is big, God is tough, I'm going to obey him. And so they're like Saul before he became Paul the apostle. Very, very law-abiding, very righteous appearing. Very much like the rich young ruler who came to Christ asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. He was very righteous. He kept the law. He said, I've, I've been faithful to the law my whole life. And Paul himself says of himself before he came to know Jesus, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Found blameless. But he does not have the righteousness of Christ. He has been, if you're in this category, okay, of the unwise, oil-lacking virgins, it's not that you don't obey the law of God. Oh, you're scared of God. You may be scared enough to say, I'm going to try and keep those commandments just like Paul, just like the rich young ruler. It's not enough. That is not the oil. So what is the oil if it's more than this fear of God that causes us to set out for the kingdom? And if it's more than the obedience to the law that we, this fear produces in us, keeping it faithfully and obedient, obediently, what is still lacking in these virgins who don't enter? What do they possess that the foolish virgins lack? And to hear this, you must put aside the thinking of our age. Let's put aside materialism. 
You must put aside the teaching of the culture in which you live, and you must put aside much teaching in our age by pastors and theologians, which however well-intentioned it may be, has kept, and I'm talking about all these groups, including the pastors, but not solely them, has kept millions upon millions of people from obtaining this oil, which is essential to entry into the kingdom of heaven. What is this oil? We see what it is from what Jesus says elsewhere in this sermon that he gives. Earlier in this sermon, Jesus said to his disciples, there's coming a hard day when they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And you understand this is exactly parallel with this parable. One group has their love grow cold and they die. One group remains strong and endure until the end. And their love remains powerful. So we go further in this discourse, we see Jesus speaks of those who are rejected from his kingdom, and that's the warning all throughout this discourse, the warning that resonates in it from beginning to end. Jesus says of those who are rejected that they not only fail in love, but they fail in what love is intended to do in the kingdom of God, to produce fruit. They fail in love, they fail in fruit. The very next parable he tells is a master who goes away on a journey and gives talents of gold to his servants to manage on his behalf while he's away. Gives one servant five, another two, one, another one. The one he comes back, the one who's had five returns ten. When he, the one who has two returns four. The one who had one hit it in the basement, comes to him with the one and says, I, I didn't steal it because you're a hard guy, man. Yeah, you're a real tough guy and I, I'm afraid of you. So he's, he's careful, he's legally obedient, but he does nothing out of love. And he gives him back his one, and the master says, be gone, be gone, out in the outer darkness, be gone, be gone, I'm taking that talent and giving it to others, you're done. And so we see in those who fail to enter a tragic deadening of their love, a terminal lack of love, and out of that lack of love flows a lack of fruit. Now they have a fear of God and they ab abide by his law as best they can in themselves. They have this form of craven obedience. I'm going to obey God. God is big. God is great. I'm going to obey him. And this man in the next parable hides his talent because he fears his master. He fears him. He fears him. He does not love him. He has a legal obedience stemming from fear, but he does not bear the fruitful obedience of love. And the obedience of love for God is always fruitful. And the obedience that stems from fear, legal obedience, and the, all that's within that phrase, that concept, you know, I fear God. Devoid of love and thus devoid of fruit. 
And so what we have today in America and around the world, especially the Western world, is an entirely legal Christianity in an entirely materialistic world. Materialism, this philosophy that I'm the center and that what is, is, and nothing else really, and how I perceive it and how it touches me is the reality of it, has entered the church, reducing the disciples of Christ to legal drones, living the bare minimum life of obedience that flows from fear rather than the rich and fruitful life of love. Notice here that all ten virgins, the Bible says there's hope, faith, and love. These three abide, but the greatest of them is love. You have not been taught that, likely. You've read it, but you have had people say to you over and over again, what you need is faith. What you need is faith. You must believe. Faith, faith, faith. Now, in a sense, we're going to say that these ten virgins all have faith. And in a sense, five of them don't have quite the faith. But all of them have a hope of heaven, don't they? They all go out. They all believe the bridegroom's coming, right? How do you differentiate between the oil of the one set and the oil of the other? They all go out in faith. They all go out in hope. They all expect things from the bridegroom. The ones who are rejected are surprised that they're not let into the banquet at the end. They have faith. They have hope. But they do not have love. They do not love God and they do not love others. They're doing it for their own benefit. Their faith is for themselves and not for God. So we live in a materialistic age, a non-spiritual age. And without the spiritual, the love of God for man... The love of God that is present in our midst, the love of God and the presence of God that's in our presence right now, without that predominating in our lives, we do not have love. Because we're thinking about ourselves and we're doing it for ourselves and not because we know a God who loves us. We fear that God. We're scared of him, and so we're doing it because we're frightened children under uh, what we view as a tyranny, and our age reflects that by calling fatherhood and the father God bad tyranny. We don't love God, and we don't know his love. And so we have an age whose representative thinkers are men like Freud and Marx and Darwin and women like Simone de Beauvoir and Betty Friedan. Freud! who reduced the relationship between men and women and between man and God to potty training. Now, some of you have read Freud, and you know I'm not making this up. I mean, he taught more than that. But what did Freud give us? A world where our potty training is, is destiny. I, I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but our destiny rely, rely, resides within ourselves, according to Freud. And so we have a world of psychoanalysis and counseling. And all of us are going to counselors because we have anxiety. And we think, if only I can work within myself to grab onto this anxiety and change it, I'll be okay. It's a world without love. It's a world without God. 
Because the answer to anxiety is God and his love. But we don't turn there. And we go to the counselor and psychoanalysis. And the same is true of sin. So we define sin. Freud redefines sin. It's not an offense against Almighty God. It's you not doing what's good for you. You're hurting yourself. And man, this is being taught all over the world today. That sin is you hurting yourself rather than you offending an almighty God. And it's reasonable. It's so reasonable. It's the famous PCA pastor who tells the story about talking to this wealthy businessman about hell and how important it is. And the guy does, I don't believe in a God of hell like that. And then he says, well, what if I told you hell is simply you being left being you for all eternity and all your nastiness? And the guy says, now that's something that really scares me. That is not hell. Jesus did not suffer hell by being left in his own nastiness. Jesus suffered the wrath of the Father, and hell is the wrath of the Father. The Father defines sin. The Father is against whom we sin. But today, it's I sin against myself. There's no trip to God. There's no God. It's all within me. Freud did that. Darwin. Adam Smith. Founder of capitalism. Not founder, but the great systematician of capitalism. The economist who wrote The Wealth of Nations. And who taught that there is an invisible hand. By which all people acting in accord with their own selfish best interests. Create a society that is good for all. Well, there's some truth in it, just as there is some truth in Freud. <laughs> some of us do suffer because of the way our parents potty trained us. <laughs> but it's not the overarching fabric of life. And there's truth in, in Adam Smith, but the idea that selfishness and my seeking my own is the path to the benefit and the blessing of all society is inherently selfish and wicked and dismissive of God. And then after Adam Smith, Darwin, who taught us that God is not leading, but we have to, it's essentially selfish again. There's no love in, in Darwinism, the survival of the fittest. And so out of that has come all the eugenics and the murder of so many of the regimes of the 20th century. And in our day, and, and these are the people that have come as a result of our diminishing the reality of God. That God is here. And God is love. God is not faith. God is not hope. God is love. And then you come with Marx, influenced by Darwin's ideas, stating in a letter to his collaborator, the Englishman Engels, that society, like the living beings on earth, is the result of historical processes of change. And so he taught that these processes, this process of one class fighting another leads to the betterment of society. Again, it's selfishness, class hatred, class envy, class warfare. Selfishness, selfishness, selfishness. And this is the faith and the hope and the love of the virgins whose oil has run out. They're doing it all, but it's not love. And so you get feminists like Simone de Beauvoir and Betty Friedan rejecting God and any idea of the fruitfulness of marriage with women raising children. 
Any idea of that being a good and loving thing? She was raised, Simone de Beauvoir, and I'm reading out of Wikipedia, was raised in a strict Catholic household. In her youth, she was sent to a convent school. She was deeply religious. At one point, there's a famous, famous feminist. How many of you have heard of Simone de Beauvoir? At one point, she intended to become a nun. At age 14, she questioned her faith as she saw many changes in the world after witnessing tragedies throughout her life. Consequently, she abandoned her faith in her early teens and remained an atheist for the rest of her life. To explain her atheist beliefs, Beauvoir stated, faith allows an evasion of those difficulties which the atheist confronts honestly. And to crown all, the believer derides a sense of great superiority from this very cowardice. Betty Friedan, American, wrote of marriage in her seminal feminist work, The Feminine Feminine Mystique. The problem lay buried unspoken for many years in the minds of American women, the problem of, of their lives. It was a strange stirring, a sense of dissatisfaction, a yearning that women suffered in the middle of the 20th century in the United States. Each suburban wife struggled with it alone. As she made the beds, shop for groceries, she was afraid to ask even of herself the silent question. What's the silent question? Is this all? Well, yes, that question is an overwhelming question if you reduce life to, to the non-spiritual and the secular. But if you see your work as love, then the, the diapers the toilet training and the changing of linens and the washing machine and all the things that fill up the the life of a mother are glory because it's love. But love means nothing to our age. So the oil that the wise virgins possess and the unwise lack is love. Love. Augustine, that some great thing, some exceedingly great thing that this oil signifies. Do you think it might be love? If we try out this hypothesis, we don't make any uh, impatient judgment. I'll tell you why love seems to be signified by the oil. The apostle says, I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongue of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is love. It is that way above all the rest which is with good reason signified here by the oil. Love. Love that leads to fruitfulness. Love that's lacking in this age. Where the greatest murderers in America today are not the black men of the inner city, but the white middle-class mothers who kill their babies in the womb because they have no love. Because we have rejected a great and loving God. And we don't live under his love and we don't love him. We're Marxists, Darwinists, capitalists all I need is me and even our faith we've said oh if you seek to have a faith that produces works that's not real faith you've got to come to God with nothing nothing bringing him nothing 
No works, no nothing. That's what he wants. Not recognizing that Jesus says, the one who loves me is the one who keeps my commandments. Love is fruitful. And I say to you mothers who are bearing children in our midst, and I say to those of you who've been denied as well, that in the simple work of love of your lives, fruitful love, you show more of the character of God to the world than anyone. We honor you. Love is hard. Love brings persecution. But you're paying a price now that will be richly rewarded in this age and in the life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the promises it contains. And I pray, Father, that we will have love, that we will be filled with your love, that love will characterize our lives, this church, and that we will not run short of love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.